Chapter Twenty Nine of the Uncommercial Traveller. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Stevens. The Uncommercial Traveller, by Charles Dickens, Chapter Twenty Nine: Titbull's Almshouses. By the side of most railways out of London. One may see almshouses and retreats, generally with a wing or a centre wanting, and ambitious of being much bigger than they are, some of which are newly founded institutions, and some old establishments transplanted. There is a tendency in these pieces of architecture to shoot upward unexpectedly, like Jack's beanstalk, and to be ornate in spires of chapels and lanterns of halls, which might lead to the embellishment of the air with many castles of questionable beauty, but for the restraining consideration of expense. However, the manners, being always of a sanguine temperament, comfort themselves with plans and elevations of loomings in the future, and are influenced in the present by philanthropy towards the railway passengers. For the question how prosperous and promising the buildings can be made to look in their eyes usually supersedes the lesser question of how they can be turned to the best account for the inmates. Why none of the people who reside in these places ever look out of window, or take an airing in the piece of ground which is going to be a garden by and by, is one of the wonders I have added to my always lengthening list of the wonders of the world. I have got it into my mind that they live in a state of chronic injury and resentment, and on that account refuse to decorate the building with a human interest. As I have known legatees deeply injured by a request of five hundred pounds because it was not five thousand, and as I was once acquainted with a pensioner on the public, to the extent of two hundred a year, who perpetually anathematized his country because he was not in the receipt of four, having no claim whatever to sixpence, so perhaps it usually happens within certain limits that to get a little help is to get a notion of being defrauded of more. How do they pass their lives in this beautiful and peaceful place? was the subject of my speculation with a visitor who once accompanied me to a charming rustic retreat for old men and women, a quaint ancient foundation in a pleasant English country, behind a picturesque church and among rich old convent gardens. There were but some dozen or so of houses, and we agreed that we would talk with the inhabitants as they sat in their groined rooms between the light of their fires and the light shining in at their latticed windows, and would find out. They passed their lives in considering themselves mulcted of certain ounces of tea by a deaf old steward who lived among them in the quadrangle. There was no reason to suppose that any such ounces of tea had ever been in existence, or that the old steward so much as knew what was the matter. He passed his life in considering himself periodically defrauded of a birch-broom by the beadle. But it is neither to old almshouses in the country, nor to new almshouses by the railroad, that these present uncommercial notes relate. They refer back to journeys made among those commonplace, smoky-fronted London almshouses, with a little paved courtyard in front enclosed by iron railings, which have got snowed up, as it were, by bricks and mortar, which were once in a suburb but are now in the densely populated town, gaps in the busy life around them, parentheses in the close and blotted texts of the streets. 
Sometimes these almshouses belonged to a company or society. Sometimes they were established by individuals, and are maintained out of private funds bequeathed in perpetuity long ago. My favourite among them is Titbull's, which establishment is a picture of many. Of Titbull I know no more than he deceased in 1723, that his Christian name was Samson, and his social designation Esquire, and that he founded these almshouses as dwellings for nine poor women and six poor men by his will and testament. I should not know even this much, but for its being inscribed on a grim stone very difficult to read, let into the front of the centre-house of Titbull's almshouses, and which stone is ornamented atop with a piece of sculptured drapery resembling the effigy of Titbull's bath-towel. Titbull's almshouses are in the east of London, in a great highway, in a poor, busy, and thronged neighbourhood. Old iron and fried fish, cough-drops and artificial flowers, boiled pig's feet and household furniture that looks as if it were polished up with lip-salve, umbrellas full of vocal literature and saucers full of shellfish in a green juice which I hope is natural to them when their health is good, garnish the paved sideways as you go to Titbull's. I take the ground to have risen in those parts since Titbull's time, and you drop into his domain by three stone steps. So did I first drop into it, very nearly striking my brows against Titbull's pump, which stands with its back to the thoroughfare just inside the gate, and has a conceited air of reviewing Titbull's pensioners. "'And a worse one,' said a virulent old man with a picture, "'there isn't nowhere. A harder one to work, nor a grudginer one to yield, there isn't nowhere.' This old man wore a long coat, such as we see Hogarth's chairman represented with, and it was of that particular green pea hue without the green which seems to come of poverty. It had also that peculiar smell of cupboard which seems to come of poverty. "'The pump is rusty, perhaps,' said I. "'Not it,' said the old man, regarding it with undiluted virulence in his watery eye. "'It never were fit to be termed a pump. That's what's the matter with it.' "'Whose fault is that?' said I. The old man, who had a working mouth which seemed to be trying to masticate his anger, and to find that it was too hard and there was too much of it, replied, "'Them gentlemen!' "'What gentlemen?' "'Maybe you're one of them,' said the old man, suspiciously. "'The trustees?' Oh, "'I wouldn't trust em myself,' said the virulent old man. "'If you mean the gentlemen who administer this place, no, I am not one of them, nor have I ever so much as heard of them.' "'I wish I never heard of them,' gasped the old man, "'at my time of life, with the rheumatics, drawing water from that thing.' Not to be deluded into calling it a pump, the old man gave it another virulent look, took up his pitcher, and carried it into a corner dwelling-house, shutting the door after him. Looking around and seeing that each little house was a house of two little rooms, and seeing that the little oblong courtyard in front was like a graveyard for the inhabitants, saving that no word was engraven on its flat dry stones, and seeing that the currents of life and noise ran to and fro outside, having no more to do with the place than if it were a sort of low watermark on a lively beach, I say, seeing this and nothing else, I was going out at the gate when one of the doors opened. "'Was you looking for anything, sir?' asked a tidy, well-favoured woman. "'Really, no, I couldn't say I was.' "'Not wanting any one, sir?' "'No, at least I—' "'Pray, what is the name of the elderly gentleman who lives in the corner there?' The tidy woman stepped out to be sure of the door I indicated, 
and she and the pump and I stood all three in a row, with our backs to the thoroughfare. "'Oh, his name is Mr. Battens,' said the tidy woman, dropping her voice. "'I've just been talking with him.' "'Indeed,' said the tidy woman. "'Ho! I wonder Mr. Battens talked.' "'Is he usually so silent?' "'Well, Mr. Battens is the oldest here, that is to say the oldest of the old gentlemen, in point of residence.' She had a way of passing her hands over and under one another as she spoke that was not only tidy but propitiatory. So I asked her if I might look at her little sitting-room. She willingly replied yes, and we went into it together, she leaving the door open with an eye, as I understood, to the social proprieties. The door opening at once into the room without any intervening entry, even scandal must have been silenced by the precaution. It was a gloomy little chamber, but clean, and with a mug of wallflower in the window. On the chimney-piece were two peacock's feathers, a carved ship, a few shells, and a black profile with one eyelash. Whether this portrait purported to be male or female passed my comprehension, until my hostess informed me that it was her only son, and quite a speaking one. "'He is alive, I hope.' "'No, sir,' said the widow. "'He were cast away in China.' This was said with a modest sense of its reflecting a certain geographical distinction on his mother. "'If the old gentlemen here are not given to talking,' said I, "'I hope the old ladies are. Not that you are one.' She shook her head. "'You see, they get so cross.' "'How is that?' "'Well, whether the gentlemen really do deprive us of any little matters which ought to be ours by rights, I cannot say for certain. But the opinion of the old ones is they do.' and Mr. Battens he do even go so far as to doubt whether credit is due to the founder. For Mr. Battens he do say, anyhow, he got his name up by it, and he done it cheap. I'm afraid the pump has soured, Mr. Battens. It may be so, returned the tidy widow, but the handle does go very hard. Still, what I say to myself is, the gentleman may not pocket the difference between a good pump and a bad one, and I would wish to think well of them. "'And the dwellings,' said my hostess, glancing round her room, "'perhaps they were convenient dwellings in the founder's time, "'considered as his time, and therefore he should not be blamed. "'But Mrs. Saggers is very hard upon them.' "'Mrs. Saggers is the oldest here?' "'The oldest but one, Mrs. Quinch being the oldest, "'and have totally lost her head. "'And you? "'I am the youngest in residence, and consequently am not looked up to. "'But when Mrs. Quinch makes a happy release, "'there will be one below me.' nor is it to be expected that Mrs. Saggers will prove herself immortal. True, nor Mr. Batten's. Regarding the old gentleman, said my widow slightingly, they count among themselves, they do not count among us. Mr. Batten's is that exceptional that he have written to the gentleman many times and have worked the case against them. Therefore he have took a higher ground, but we do not, as a rule, greatly reckon the old gentleman. Pursuing the subject, I found it to be traditionally settled among the poor ladies that the poor gentlemen, whatever their ages, were all very old indeed, and in a state of dotage. I also discovered that the juniors and newcomers preserved, for a time, a waning disposition to believe in Titbull and his trustees, but that as they gained social standing they lost this faith, and disparaged Titbull and all his works. Improving my acquaintance subsequently with this respected lady, whose name was Mrs. Mitts, and occasionally dropping in upon her with a little offering of sound family hyson in my pocket, I gradually became familiar with the inner politics and ways of Tipbull's almshouses. 
but I never could find out who the trustees were, or where they were, it being one of the fixed ideas of the place that those authorities must be vaguely and mysteriously mentioned as the gentleman only. The secretary of the gentleman was once pointed out to me, evidently engaged in championing the obnoxious pump against the attacks of the discontented Mr. Battens but i am not in a condition to report further of him than that he had the sprightly bearing of a lawyer's clerk i had it from mrs mitt's lips in a very confidential moment that mr battens was once had up before the gentleman to stand or fall by his accusations and that an old shoe was thrown after him on his departure from the building on this dread errand not ineffectually for the interview resulting in a plumber was considered to have encircled the temples of mr battens with the wreath of victory in tipbull's almshouses the local society is not regarded as good society a gentleman or lady receiving visitors from without or going out to tea counts as it were accordingly but visitings or tea-drinkings interchanged among titbullians do not score such interchanges however are rare in consequence of internal dissensions occasioned by Mrs. Sagger's pail, which household article has split Tipbulls into almost as many parties as there are dwellings in that precinct. The extremely complicated nature of the conflicting articles of belief on the subject prevents my stating them here with my usual perspicuity, but I think they have all branched off from the root-and-trunk question, has Mrs. Saggers any right to stand her pail outside her dwelling? The question has been much refined upon, but roughly stated may be stated in those terms. There are two old men in Tipple's almshouses who, I have been given to understand, knew each other in the world beyond its pump and iron railings, when they were both in trade. They make the best of their reverses, and are looked upon with great contempt. They are little, stooping, blear-eyed old men of cheerful countenance, and they hobble up and down the courtyard, wagging their chins and talking together quite gaily. This has given offence, and has, moreover, raised the question of whether they are justified in passing any other windows than their own. Mr. Battens, however, permitting them to pass his windows, on the disdainful ground that their imbecility almost amounts to irresponsibility, they are allowed to take their walk in peace. They live next door to one another, and take it by turns to read the newspaper aloud, that is to say, the newest newspaper they can get, and they play cribbage at night. On warm and sunny days they have been known to go so far as to bring out two chairs and sit by the iron railings, looking forth. But this low conduct being much remarked upon throughout Titbull's, they were deterred by an outraged public opinion from repeating it. There is a rumour, but it may be malicious, that they hold the memory of Titbull in some weak sort of veneration, and that they once set off together on a pilgrimage to the parish churchyard to find his tomb. To this, perhaps, might be traced a general suspicion that they are spies of the gentleman, to which they were supposed to have given colour in my own presence on the occasion of the weak attempt at justification of the pump by the gentleman's clerk, when they emerged bare-headed from the doors of their dwellings, as if their dwellings and themselves constituted an old-fashioned weather-glass of double action, with two figures of old ladies inside, and deferentially bowed to him at intervals until he took his departure. They are understood to be perfectly friendless and relationless. Unquestionably, the two poor fellows make the very best of their lives in Titbull's almshouses, 
and unquestionably they are, as before mentioned, the subjects of unmitigated contempt there. On Saturday nights, when there is a greater stir than usual outside, and when itinerant vendors of miscellaneous wares even take their stations and light up their smoky lamps before the iron railings, Tipbulls becomes flurried. Mrs. Saggers has her celebrated palpitations of the heart, for the most part, on Saturday nights. But Tipbulls is unfit to strive with the uproar of the streets in any of its phases. It is religiously believed at Tipbulls that people push more than they used, and likewise that the foremost object of the population of England and Wales is to get you down and trample on you. Even of railroads they know at Tipbulls little more than the shriek, which Mrs. Saggers says goes through her and ought to be taken up by government. And the penny postage may even yet be unknown there, for I have never seen a letter delivered to any inhabitant. But there is a tall, straight, sallow lady resident in number seven, Tipbulls, who never speaks to anybody, who is surrounded by a superstitious halo of lost wealth, who does her household work in housemaid's gloves, and who is secretly much deferred to, though openly cavilled at, and it has obscurely leaked out that this old lady has a son, grandson, nephew, or other relative, who is a contractor, and who would think it nothing of a job to knock down Tipbulls, pack it off to Cornwall, and knock it together again. An immense sensation was made by a gypsy party, calling in a spring-van, to take this old lady up to go for a day's pleasure into Epping Forest, and notes were compared as to which of the company was the son, grandson, nephew, or other relative, the contractor. A thick-set personage, with a white hat and a cigar in his mouth, was the favourite, though as Tipples had no other reason to believe that the contractor was there at all than that this man was supposed to eye the chimney-stacks as if he would like to knock them down and cart them off, the general mind was much unsettled in arriving at a conclusion. As a way out of this difficulty, it concentrated itself on the acknowledged beauty of the party, every stitch in whose dress was verbally unripped by the old ladies then and there, and whose goings-on with another and a thinner personage in a white hat might have suffused the pump, where they were principally discussed, with blushes for months afterwards. Herein Tipples was to Tipples true, for it has a constitutional dislike of all strangers. As concerning innovations and improvements, it is always of opinion that what it doesn't want itself nobody ought to want but I think I have met with this opinion outside Tipbulls. Of the humble treasures of furniture brought into Tipbulls by the inmates when they established themselves in that place of contemplation for the rest of their days, by far the greater and more valuable part belongs to the ladies. I may claim the honour of having either crossed the threshold or looked in at the door of every one of the nine ladies, and I have noticed that they are all particular in the article of bedsteads, and maintain favourite and long-established bedsteads and bedding as a regular part of their rest. Generally an antiquated chest of drawers is among their cherished possessions. A tea-tray always is. I know of at least two rooms in which a little tea-kettle of genuine burnished copper vies with the cat in winking at the fire. And one old lady has a tea-urn set forth in state on the top of her chest of drawers, which urn is used as her library, and contains four duodecimo volumes, and a black-bordered newspaper giving an account of the funeral of Her Royal Highness the Princess Charlotte. 
among the poor old gentlemen there are no such niceties their furniture has the air of being contributed like some obsolete literary miscellany by several hands their few chairs never match old patchwork coverlets linger among them and they have an untidy habit of keeping their wardrobes in hat-boxes when i recall one old gentleman who is rather choice in his shoe-brushes and blacking-bottle i have summed up the domestic elegances of that side of the building on the occurrence of a death in titbulls it is invariably agreed among the survivors and it is the only subject on which they do agree that the departed did something to bring it on judging by titbulls i should say the human race need never die if they took care but they don't take care and they do die and when they die in titbulls they are buried at the cost of the foundation some provision has been made for the purpose in virtue of which i record this on the strength of having seen the funeral of mrs kinch a lively neighbouring undertaker dresses up four of the old men and four of the old women hustles them into a procession of four couples and leads off with a large black bow at the back of his hat looking over his shoulder at them airily from time to time to see that no member of the party has got lost or has tumbled down as if they were a company of dim old dolls resignation of a dwelling is a very rare occurrence in titbulls a story does obtain there how an old lady's son once drew a prize of thirty thousand pounds in the lottery and presently drove to the gate in his own carriage with french horns playing up behind and whisked his mother away and left ten guineas for a feast but i have been unable to substantiate it by any evidence and regard it as an almshouse fairy tale it is curious that the only proved case of resignation happened within my knowledge it happened on this wise there is a sharp competition among the ladies respecting the gentility of their visitors and i have so often observed visitors to be dressed as for a holiday occasion that i suppose the ladies to have besought them to make all possible display when they come in these circumstances much excitement was one day occasioned by mrs mitts receiving a visit from a greenwich pensioner he was a pensioner of a bluff and warlike appearance with an empty coat-sleeve and he was got up with unusual care his coat-buttons were extremely bright he wore his empty coat-sleeve in a graceful festoon and he had a walking-stick in his hand that must have cost money when with the head of his walking-stick he knocked at mrs mitts's door there are no knockers in titbulls mrs mitts was overheard by a next-door neighbour to utter a cry of surprise expressing much agitation and the same neighbour did afterwards solemnly affirm that when he was admitted into mrs mitts's room she heard a smack heard a smack which was not a blow there was an air about this greenwich pensioner when he took his departure which imbued all titbulls with the conviction that he was coming again he was eagerly looked for and mrs mitts was closely watched in the meantime if anything could have placed the unfortunate six old gentlemen at a greater disadvantage than that at which they chronically stood it would have been the apparition of this greenwich pensioner they were well shrunken already but they shrunk to nothing in comparison with the pensioner even the poor old gentlemen themselves seemed conscious of their inferiority and to know submissively that they could never hope to hold their own against the pensioner with his warlike and maritime experience in the past and his tobacco money in the present his chequered career of blue water black gunpowder and red bloodshed for england home and beauty before three weeks were out the pensioner reappeared 
again he knocked at mrs mitz's door with the handle of his stick and again was he admitted but not again did he depart alone for mrs mitz in a bonnet identified as having been re-embellished went out walking with him and stayed out till the ten o'clock beer greenwich time there was now a truce even as to the troubled waters of mrs sagger's pail nothing was spoken of among the ladies but the conduct of mrs mitts and its blighting influence on the reputation of titbulls it was agreed that mr battens ought to take it up and mr battens was communicated with on this subject that unsatisfactory individual replied that he didn't see his way yet and it was unanimously voted by the ladies that aggravation was in his nature how it came to pass with some appearance of inconsistency that mrs mitts was cut by all the ladies and the pensioner admired by all the ladies matters not before another week was out titbulls was startled by another phenomenon at ten o'clock in the forenoon appeared a cab containing not only the greenwich pensioner with one arm but to boot a chelsea pensioner with one leg both dismounting to assist mrs mitts into the cab the greenwich pensioner bore her company inside and the chelsea pensioner mounted the box by the driver his wooden leg sticking out after the manner of a bowsprit as if in jocular homage to his friend's sea-going career thus the equipage drove away no mrs mitts returned that night what mr battens might have done in the matter of taking it up goaded by the infuriated state of public feeling next morning was anticipated by another phenomenon a truck propelled by the greenwich pensioner and the chelsea pensioner each placidly smoking a pipe and pushing his warrior breast against the handle the display on the part of the greenwich pensioner of his marriage lines and his announcement that himself and friend had looked in for the furniture of mrs g pensioner late mitts by no means reconciled the ladies to the conduct of their sister on the contrary it is said that they appeared more than ever exasperated nevertheless my stray visits to titbull since the date of this occurrence have confirmed in me an impression that it was a wholesome fillip the nine ladies are smarter both in mind and dress than they used to be though it must be admitted that they despise the six gentlemen to the last extent they have a much greater interest in the external thoroughfare too than they had when i first knew titbulls and whenever i chance to be leaning my back against the pump or the iron railings and to be talking to one of the junior ladies and to see that a flush has passed over her face i immediately know without looking round that a greenwich pensioner has gone past end of chapter twenty nine